0: podcast by the Tax Institute. I'm Robin Jacobson, the Senior Advocate at the Tax Institute and your host of today's podcast. We love the vibe of tax and here at the Tax Institute we do tax differently. I'll be chatting with some of the tax profession's great thought leaders who will share valuable and practical insights you may not hear every day. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Vibe. I'm joined by John Ayanu, CTA, Principal Lawyer and National Head of Tax at McPherson Kelly in Brisbane. John has over 20 years' legal experience with a focus on tax structuring, tax disputes and commercial advice. John is respected within the industry for his expertise and knowledge and in 2021 and 2022 was recommended as a tax lawyer in Queensland in Doyle's Guide. John has a Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Laws and a Master of Laws. John also sits on the Tax Institute's Strategic Advisory Committee and chairs the National Engagement Committee. John, firstly, welcome to Tax Five, and secondly, we are here in person at the Tax Summit. What a buzz.
1: I know. Thank you for having me. It's good to be uh, back at an event in person.
0: Look, it really is, and, and seeing well over a thousand people here, and getting everyone back in person after two and a half years since we've been able to hold a proper tax summit in this manner. So, this morning, we've had some sessions that have looked at Section 100A and Div 7A, and there've been others relating to companies and trusts. And I thought, let's just tackle that good old-fashioned rivalry, the company versus the trust. Which is better? Which one wins? And a question that I received after my session this morning, are trusts dead? With everything going on, is there still a role for them?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I can't subscribe to the theory that trusts are dead. I will concede though that I don't think they're the first go-to point if you're going to start advising clients on structuring. And that breaks my heart a little. I mean, when I started out in practice, fair to say it would have bordered on negligence advising a client to go straight into a company instead of a trust because people just covet that general discount and just assume that it applies to all things. But the world has definitely changed. And in my mind, uh, dropping corporate rate of tax I think we're all better educated uh, about how trusts work and interact with particular sections and I just think a lot of the assumptions and myths that operated to prioritise the use of trusts have been disbanded. So I think there's still absolutely a place for them but, yeah, like I said, I I don't think they're the first port of call anymore.
0: I want to unpack all that with you a little more but if we start, even with the discount, Mm. if you're a trading business then we're not really looking at a big capital gain at the end anyway, potentially. It's really just about profits, in which case you probably did default to a company anyway. Yep. Once you start looking at access to, whether it be small business CGT concessions or the 50% discount, or of course flexibility in how you distribute, we start to move into trust territory. Yep. But if I take you back, so let's go back to when you first started in practice Mm. and you said it could have been bordering (laughs) on negligence had you not gone with a trust structure. Yep. What were the key factors or indicators that would lead you to choose one structure over another back then? And what I'd like to do is unpack what's changed since then.
1: It's a really good question. And in my mind, back in the day, I think there was a lot of assumption about what would constitute a capital asset. So I think that's one uh, flag that that needs to go up, which we can talk about a, a little later. And then. I guess I've always seen it from the perspective if you're a small business, private business operator, you're constantly focused on building your your business, um, making sure that you can get it to a point where it can operate without you. That automatically means most business owners uh, don't superannuate themselves properly. They won't take a wage. They're not thinking about that. They're trying to build a capital asset. And I think the mindset continues to be if we focus on uh, producing business that we can sell, the the panacea, is being able to do that and shelter everything from tax. And that means being uh, eligible for um, the discount capital gain, small business CGT concessions, but also having it in an environment where you can easily extract it. So if you sort of oversimplify um, all of those considerations, trusts were a bit of a no-brainer back in the day. And I mean, I think the other important thing to appreciate, um, even if you accept, you know, having a an entity that isn't able to retain profit doesn't make a lot of sense. But back in the day, again, that was easily fixed with corporate beneficiary. UPEs were what they were. And properly advised, you could have people... Um, build a capital asset in a magnificent environment in the sense it was easy to achieve a corporate rate of tax. Um, They had maximum flexibility. And when realisation event happened, uh, it was easy to extract and deal with it. Like I said, that was more than 20 years ago. Um, A lot's changed since then. And, you know, it it isn't just, you know, the the ATO's attitude to, to UPEs. I do think generally as a profession we're all better educated on the ins and outs of trusts and that's definitely being influenced when, you know, practitioners who enjoy deep diving into technical issues like me, when you start to look at jurisdictions like New Zealand um, or even like England where trusts have been around for a lot longer and the jurisprudence is a lot more advanced, I think our choice of trusts as the first port of call was based on a lot of, I'll say, assumption, naivety, because we just haven't had the same rigour applied to trusts as other jurisdictions have. And I say all of that because I still think they're a good thing. But given the change to, you know, what actually constitutes a capital asset, as well as how trusts, um, or how trustees interact with particular beneficiaries and their profiles, that instantly detracts from the reasoning that you put clients into it in the first place, which was simplicity. They were simple then. The issues weren't complex, they were well managed. And you can't just say that anymore. There are issues. They can still be managed, but I don't think they're the, they're the vehicle of the people. Um, as they once were.
0: You speak of naivety and I think also over the last 20, 30 years of how knowledge has evolved. I think back to pre-Bamford, which was in 2010. Prior to that time, very few practitioners, I think, in practice were doing resolutions properly by June 30. Yep. I think that was well understood across the profession. Yep. And practice has definitely changed and I think we've reached a point where it's understood that that's just the way it has to be done. Now, when it comes to other rules, trust loss provisions, the trustee-beneficiary reporting rules, closely held trust reporting rules, there are 38 different sets of rules within the tax law dealing with the taxation of trusts or how they relate to trusts. Now, there's a lot to navigate, but I'm sort of looking at chicken and egg. Have these rules evolved because of practices and behaviour that taxpayers have undertaken, or have taxpayers undertaken that behaviour because of the development of the tax rules?
1: Well... Let's not talk about tax reform and actually looking at the bigger picture. I definitely think some of the measures that we've been left to deal with are off the back of taxpayer behaviour. I think other measures, we have them because we just better understand the issues at play and, yeah, the measures are required to ensure that all of those things are adequately addressed. But I guess my my problem with that, I mean, having sat in a session earlier about um, structuring for um, professional practices and you know talking about a, a corporate vehicle, which is the other contender against a trust, but you sort of start to think about capital management issues um, in dealing with a company, so you've you know you have the Corporations Act which overlays tax issues, duty issues. And if you thought the measures in relation to dealing with trusts were complex, I mean, have a look at the ones that deal with corporates. They're even more difficult. And I just think we're in a world now where I probably hesitate because I think as advisors we've got our work cut out for us already but the world has become a bit harder because now what we actually have to do is better educate the clients on all these issues. And I think... The hard bit in trying to get clients to make the choice, do you want to trust, do you want a company? You, You almost have to bombard them with a bit of your crystal ball gazing to get them to understand there isn't a perfect structure. You might be perfectly suited based on what you're telling me and what you've got in your line of sight to be in a company or in a trust. But I almost feel like we're in this scenario now where they make a decision based on that. Something changes that they didn't contemplate or the advisor didn't contemplate and it's, well, you know, why didn't you foresee that? If that had happened, I probably should have started in a different structure. And I just say that because you use a company or a trust. I don't know anymore. I don't think there's just a go-to startup vehicle other than I'll concede. If you're talking about startup business rather than passive investment, the tax world is definitely geared up towards corporate environment um, and, and not a
0: trust one. Do you think complacency has played a role here? In other words, we can all joke about the lost trust deed that you know, you've know got to read it first, but before you read it, you've actually got to locate it. Um, it's been very tongue in cheek, but there's been, a, of course, a serious undertone there. So over the years, I feel like there's been a much greater respect for trust law. We don't have federal regulation of trusts it's all of course done by state law yep. and by the trustee. and I just wonder whether that has played a role in perhaps companies being regarded as a, a much more regulated vehicle there's no national register of trusts, and that has been tossed around over the years
1: yeah I think that's right and I mean if I was going to be the advocate for a trust I think the lack of regulation is a good thing and I mean I've, I've I've just presented on, you know, partnerships. And why do they remain popular? Um, Because they're easy. They're flexible. They're not regulated like a corporate environment. And for people who are just focused on making money by delivering professional services, that's really good. Um, Life's easy. And I think trusts fit into the same box. If I'm going to play um, devil's uh, advocate and think, well, why is a company better Well, I just think from a regulation and regulator's perspective, because there's so much visibility on what they are, um, how they operate, what you've got to do with to deal with them, and you're not so much dependent on the controllers of the entity, that makes a lot of sense as well. So a lot of the practical issues you have to deal with when you've got too much flexibility disappear when you're in a regulated environment and the only downside of that is sometimes they can be so regulated and so prescriptive that, you know, they kill the thing that they were designed to help, which is business development and entrepreneurship.
0: If we also look at there are certain needs that companies will satisfy, so if you're wanting to get into R&D and you want the benefits of the tax incentive, if you want to list publicly revenue um is obviously taxed at a corporate rate and lower. And it's interesting with the base rate entity position we're now in, where 25% at a base rate entity level is looking pretty similar to capital gain with CGT discount. Now, I acknowledge that it's still in the entity and you need to extract it. Yep. But at a, a simple number crunching exercise, we're nearly in the same place certainly with a capital gain.
1: Yep. Oh, and I've had that uh, thinking for a little while now because, I mean, we – we all know the classic disaster situation where someone's been advised to start up business in a company. It's very profitable. They start to think, well, what can we do with the excess money? And you know, the go-to place is get a, get a trust. That should acquire the investment. Money goes from company to trust. If 7A issues, they don't understand it. But I, I do think now there's a lot of value to get people to understand because of Division 7A, because the inability for a trust to retain profit effectively, why wouldn't you just use a a corporate? If you're paying 25% on your working capital and you can buy investments in another corporate and they're gonna pay 25% tax on any profit and you don't have a Division 7A issue, do that. Life's simple because, you know, Access to the discount capital gain is a fallacy in my mind if you're relying on it by use of corporate money. If you've got after-tax money because you've made a mozza somewhere um, and it's sitting in your personal bank account, absolutely. Go establish a trust, put it in as a loan or gift and knock yourself out. But if your primary income-producing activities originate from a company, in my mind it makes sense your investments should be in a corporate environment as well if you're not wanting to deal with the dreaded top-up tax.
0: Another aspect is how do we fund retirement? Now, I see there are three main ways we do this. One is the family home where you may downsize later in life and sell off the the big property and move to a smaller one or to a retirement home. The second one is the superannuation environment and there's so much more we could say about superannuation guarantee and, and the whole super system, but let's leave that for another day. And the third one I see is investments held outside super. And it's a really interesting question. If you start building up investments in a company, income taxed at 25%, if it's a base rate entity, and then depending on the type of income you're deriving, you could end up with some decent franking credits in there. So it becomes an attractive way of funding retirement.
1: It does. And I've often described uh, corporates that are used for investments as de facto super funds. People can have the discipline to leave the money in there, let it accumulate, pay tax at the corporate rate, uh, depending, you know, what else you're doing with superannuation and the like. It would make sense that that should be pseudo super fund, So when you're not earning other income, you're able to draw down uh, on those profits. I don't want to delve into tax reform because I think there's, if you're talking about how to deal with retirement, I think there's some work to be done generally in respect of how people are able to retire with the limits on what you can put into super and that, I think, mixes in with refundability of tax credits which were introduced at a time where the tax landscape was a little bit different in respect of how super funds were taxed and tax-free threshold. Those things have changed. refundability of franking credits haven't.
0: Transfer balance cap.
1: So I think um, broadly, yeah, that retirement discussion is a juicy one. But I, I think if it gets tackled, it needs to be tackled with proper reform, because I, in my mind, see a number of moving parts that need to change. And I think you can only have reform if you get people to understand what the actual big picture is, what all the moving parts are that need to change, why they need to change. And get them to understand if you only change a couple, that's not enough. And I think tax reform generally, that's been our problem. There's nobody there who's able to tell people, this is the whole picture. This is where we were. This is where we currently are. This is how we got there. This is where we need to be. And this is how we need to do it. I just think we keep talking about tax reform in piecemeal context um, and tackling it and That's why it's hard because nobody understands uh, what the big picture is.
0: John, it's music to my ears because, you know, of course, at the Tax Institute we are so supportive of and committed to holistic tax reform, not tinkering, not playing with little provisions on the edges but actually getting into the thrust of the core design of the system and how it works. There is so much we could do with tax reform and maybe we'll get you back another time to chat about that. Can I focus back on retirement? Yes, if we're looking at generational passage of wealth, we've got our vesting periods with trusts, we've got perpetual life with companies. So there's another fundamental difference there between them. And while we set these things up, I'm, I've done my basic math. There's a whole chunk of trusts that were set up back in the 70s and 80s. Assuming they actually do have an 80 year vesting period, and some of them actually have shorter periods than that, there are going to be hundreds of thousands of trusts vesting in the next 20, 30, 40 years.
1: Absolutely. What do you do about that? I don't know. I think we're better educated on the actual consequences of vesting. So whilst there may be some tax consequences for particular trusts that vest, for others there won't be. And I think, does that create a problem? I don't know. I mean, if all that happens is a discretionary trust stops being discretionary and instead requires the trustee to send amounts to Particular beneficiaries. I don't know. Where's the evil in that?
0: Because it doesn't necessarily mean that the trust has to end, of course. You don't need to pull the wealth out of the trust. It just means you haven't got the discretion as to where you send it anymore.
1: Correct. And I think, I mean, there's no easy answer. I, I think even just, you know, if each state followed South Australia and just said, hey, no more perpetuity period, all. It may not necessarily help all deeds that are in existence. Um, They may not be able to deal with that um, as easily. And, I mean, most people also forget, I think, South Australia, even in um, eliminating its perpetuity period, has provisions in its Property Law Act that still allow beneficiaries of trusts that will never vest to uh, go and call for real estate after a perpetuity period expires. But, again, it's probably just getting people to understand the whole picture and knowing that there is no quick fix for any of the issues uh, we have to deal with.
0: Let's go down another rabbit hole. You've got one structure. You like to be in another. There are various forms of rollover, so you're not necessarily wedded to the original structure you set up with. Yep. But, of course, there are a lot of hurdles you need to jump over to get to that other structure.
1: Yes. I mean, the majority of rollovers are all aimed at getting into a corporate environment. We've only got the small business restructure, which should have been the panacea. But again, trusts have caused a little bit of an issue in respect of uh, the interplay of how that rollover works when you have a a non-fixed trust. But in theory, if we sort of had uh, true reform, you'd preferably want to get to a point where you're structure agnostic so that you're not penalised or disadvantaged um, by virtue of being in a particular restructure.
0: We certainly raised that issue or concept in our case for change report in July last year, the idea that you tax the type of income, not the structure that it happens to be derived in.
1: Yep.
0: Another fundamental difference between the two is whether or not there's a separate legal entity in existence. We're all taught in uni that A company is a separate legal entity and a a trust is more like a relationship or a marriage. And John, it just reminds me of a story that I heard on radio some years ago. A fellow was driving down the LA freeway in the transit lane, but it was one of those transit lanes where you have to have two persons in the vehicle and the police pulled him over and they fined him and he objected to the fine and was so insistent that he took his matter to court. Now, I'm not familiar with the particular LA Freeway Law Act or whatever is applicable in that particular city, but let's just say it needed two legal persons in the car. And his argument was there was another legal person in the car because his corporate register was sitting on the passenger seat next to him. Now, I'm going to surmise that in that particular piece of legislation it kind of required a breathing human being to be in the car with him, not merely another legal entity. But... I love the story. He lost the case, but I think it just goes to the legal framework within which we operate. It is a person.
1: That is such a good example. And I did touch on it in my session where it's no one's fault, but there's this clear confusion between um, a person, a legal entity that exists at law, and then an entity for taxation purposes. They're all three different things and being one doesn't make you another but it's amazing our world is so complex how people latch onto a concept for one context and then use that to make sense of others and it goes horribly wrong Um, and I mean recent case of RCF um, where I touched on a limited partnerships Limited partnerships are supposed, well, they are corporate tax entities for taxation purposes, general law partnerships, which, as you say, isn't an entity. It's just a relationship between partners and and their property. Deemed to be um, a corporate tax entity for income tax purposes. Great for limited liability um, in the context of limited partners being like shareholders in a company. But people forgetting uh, being deemed a corporate tax entity doesn't mean you're actually a body corporate like a company so partners in a limited partnership still being jointly and severally liable for tax obligations and again I feel bad for people because our world's hard how are you supposed to get structuring right when structures mean different things for different purposes and people getting caught out when they use a meaning for one purpose for another and it doesn't work.
0: A little tip for the first timers reading tax law. If it uses the word person, it means any type of taxpayer. If it uses the word individual, it means a breathing human being. Good point. <laughs> so, when we've got all these different structures and then we start layering it, we just start doing partnerships of trusts and we start putting in trustee companies and corporate beneficiaries. And hopefully, you haven't got the trustee also being the corporate beneficiary. I'd prefer that it's always separate. But it just adds so much more complexity. And then we add in New developments, 100A, of course, is a really significant view that's being put forward by the ATO and their draft guidance. And we've had a a good chat about that this morning. But it's making people rethink how they're using trusts and are they better off using companies. So, as we draw this discussion to a close, John, um, if I can put you as an advocate wearing two hats at the same time one is fighting for trusts and one is fighting for companies, which one's going to knock the other one out?
1: Don't make me choose. Can't I go back to my lawyer response and say it depends?
0: Absolutely. It does depend though in all seriousness.
1: It does. And I, I, But if you're going to, well, I'll give you an answer, but it's a qualified answer. So if we're talking about business enterprise, I'd be inclined to go a corporate, albeit one that's owned in the trust. And if I go back to my simple example, if you've got excess cash um, that's after tax and you're looking to invest, go down for trust. I don't think we're at a point where we can say avoid trusts at all costs. And they're
0: certainly not dead. No. John, thank you so much for your time.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Tax 5 I've been chatting with John Anu, CTA, Principal Lawyer and National Head of Tax Commercial at McPherson Kelly. We recorded this episode of Tax Vibe live at the biggest tax event of the year, the Tax Summit in Sydney. The Tax Summit is three days of tax technical insights, thought leadership, and world class networking opportunities where the profession's best and brightest come together. Next year, the Tax Summit will be coming to Melbourne. We hope to see you there. To keep up to date with Tax Five, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, follow the Tax Institute on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can join the conversation on our member-only community forum at community.taxinstitute.com.au. Not a member of the Tax Institute? Join a collective voice of 15,000 practitioners at the heart of the tax profession and find out what the best tax professionals have in common. For more information, visit taxinstitute.com.au forward slash membership. You can also contact us by emailing taxvibe at taxinstitute.com.au. We look forward to you joining us next time.